Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of our How Are You specials here at Everything is Fine. I am your host Sean Wilson and I have a very special one for you this week. We here at EIF love to cover a variety of different topics throughout pop culture. Movies, books, video games, all the likes. And we always try to bring our our lightest and most fun opinions. Our, we discuss our favorite parts of each franchise we cover. We discuss these wonderful, hopeful scenes, and we try and make light of a lot of things. But today, instead of making light and exposing a little bit more of the, the fantastic moments of cinematography of something, or talking about very nice writing in a specific series, I want to get a bit darker. I have for you today a very special treat. The past two weeks of my research, I have put together a wonderful little presentation. I want to show you guys a little bit of a darker side of one of the more beloved video game, uh, video game studios that most people have known about, most people have gotten their hands on a game throughout their lifetime. I'm talking, of course, about Nintendo. For years, Nintendo has delighted families across the world with stories of Valiant plumbers trying to save the day and save their princesses. Heroes who travel across magical lands and prevent the world from ending and can continue to halt the flow of evil throughout generations. Wonderful trainers who battle with their beloved Pokemon in terms for the title of Pokemon Champion in each of their regions. And so on and so forth. Pick a beloved Nintendo franchise. Any of them out there. Kid Icarus, Fire Emblem, Kirby, all of these wonderful stories told about heroes, villains, and the likes of fun. For every serious moment in any Nintendo franchise, there's always the joyful side moments. Talking around the camp in Fire Emblem, designing your town in Animal Crossing. Pick something. There's these light, fun moments. What could possibly be wrong about that? Well... Throughout the decades, many eagle-eyed fans of many different Nintendo properties have noticed that there are a few things every once in a while that don't quite add up to being so innocent. There are a few moments in a couple of Nintendo games that really make us scratch our heads and wonder, why is that there? What was the point of including something like that? Why? Just why would these implications present themselves? And it's those little blips in game narratives or game mechanics or in dialogue between characters that have made a large amount of the internet work together and kind of compound some of their ideas and theories to really trying to explain some of those mysterious and quite ominous moments across a lot of Nintendo's beloved franchises. So today, I have a treat. I'm going to be talking about a few of my favorite bone-chilling and dark theories that eagle-eyed fans have put together throughout the years. Some of them are proven, some of them not. But at the end of the day, I do want to make a disclaimer. Yes, some of these, these theories are very, very dark and ominous. Do we think they're actually true? Probably not. Some of them have been flat-out debunked. But... With every theory that is composed about any work of art, the point is not to answer a question that was presented to us, it's more so to answer a question that no one asked. 
but it's not because it wasn't asked doesn't mean it's not important. Fictional universes of any type eventually get so big that you just kind of wonder about things that are never really brought to the surface on the surface level in the media by the creator. So it's up to us as enjoying patrons of those properties to, of course, answer those questions in the darkest and most depressing ways possible. These are not answers. These are simply new ways to view some of your favorite series Nintendo has pumped out over the years. And with all of that, for the sake of enjoyment and speculation, of course, in a darker light, let's get into those wonderfully dark and creepy theories. I have a few for you. And I'll start with, of course, everyone's favorite plumber, Mario. There's so many things that have been said about the Mario games throughout the years. There have been uh, the speculations that because in the first game, Bowser turned all of the denizens of the Mushroom Kingdom into bricks, that every time Mario bashes his head against one of those brick blocks, he's really killing a toad. And, of course, it gets darker from there. But I'm going to actually pick on one of the smaller, less talked about theories that circulated about a couple decades ago. And it's about one specific type of minion in Bowser's army. Everyone has seen a shy guy before. They're these cute little minions dressed in a bright red coat, blue boots, and this beautiful, opaque mask in a shocked expression. Of course, being named shy guys, they are extremely shy and refuse to take off their cloak and mask, and they leave their entirety of their bodies hidden. They are faithful to Bowser and serve in his army as a specialist corps. They act as the rank of captain in his, in his army, showing that they have a lot of authority over the lesser grunts, such as Koopa Troopas, Goombas, and the likes. And while most of those typical units are recruited through normal means, no one really knows where the shy guy came from. No one's really like seen one outside of Bowser's army. They just kind of showed up in their red coats under the shy guy brigade, giving orders. And Bowser was okay with it. No one knows beyond that. Well, perhaps one person does. See, of course Bowser is in charge of his army, isn't he? So he's got to screen all of his troops. I mean, if you're going to run an army and you're going to try and repeatedly take over the Mushroom Kingdom, you got to know everything about where your soldiers come from, what kind of training they receive. The Shy Guy are a mystery, because Bowser's never talked about them. There's never been an explanation for any of their training, their abilities, their cooperation. Or is there? You see, to speculate on where the Shy Guy might have come from, we actually turn our heads to a different specialist unit in Bowser's army, the Magic Koopa. Magic Koopas are specialist units that use magic and fly around on brooms and use their staves and cast spells in order to impede Mario and his friends on their adventures. They're a very, very deadly and very annoying troop to deal with. But once again, they're a strange unit. They're Koopas, of course, biologically, but they're Koopas without a shell. That's a little weird. Well, what do we know about them? We actually do know 
quite a good amount about the Magikoopa's origins. See, Magikoopas are extremely dedicated for a Koopa. They decided to rise through the ranks of Bowser's military hierarchy to a frightening result. Magikoopas, in order to gain the immense power they carry, undergo a very terrifying experiment. They are removed from their shells, painfully, might I add, and undergo experimentation to learn and harness magic, as Koopas cannot naturally learn magic in normal means. Some of them volunteer, most are drafted into this position. The most promising soldiers from their unit are carried on into these horrifying experiments. Well, with any experiment, there's never a 100% success rate. We know for a fact, as it has been officially released in Nintendo's compendium for Mario's works, that this is the truth. This is where Magikoopas come from. But we don't have an answer for where the unlucky few rejects are sent to, or even what happens to a rejected Koopa that can't continue their trials. I mean, once the shell's off and you're halfway through and you're giving up or you don't make it to the next round, one can assume the worst. Enter the Shy Guy. Let's say that some of these failed Magikoopa experiments definitely can't participate in further experimentations, but still have the ability to walk around and fight in the army. They're probably not going to look too well after being forcibly uh, removed from their shells and experimented on heavily. I mean, even a normal Magikoopa isn't the prettiest thing in the world, but at least it's not horrifying. Wearing a mask and a shawl like that? Shy guys probably have a good reason to be shy. So, can't really return to a normal life if they're still able to, you know, continue living. So here we are. Bowser simply strolls into the room, throws a handful of red cloaks on the ground, says if you're still willing to serve, put these on, and no one needs to know. I don't... I, Bowser's already a villain in the Mushroom Kingdom, but I don't think he also needs to be branded as a, uh, uh, a man who willingly allows his troops to undergo very unethical genetic experimentation. So... What's the proof of all this? Well, there's a canonical moment that kind of provides the speculation necessary to connect these dots of this horrific experiment. Um, in 2004, Mario and his friends participated in Mario's, uh, Mario's Mario Tennis World Cup. And yes, you can play as a variety of different Mario cast members, uh, all of the favorites are here, but you can also play as quite a few members from Bowser's army, one of these being the Shy Guy. And if you win as a Shy Guy in a couple of the cup tournaments, you get the Shy Guy's victory ending cutscene. In this, the cameraman broadcasting the event all the way across the Mushroom Kingdom has his camera trained on the Shy Guy that is walking up to the podium to receive the grand prize trophy and the medal, but as he just was about to get onto the podium, he trips, and you actually see the Shy Guy lose his mask. The cameraman is not able to catch a glimpse of the Shy Guy's face, but there is one individual who is an eyewitness for the event. An Italian plumber by the name of Luigi Mario. Oh, yeah, by the way, a uh, little side tangent. The Mario Bros 
are called the Mario Bros because their last name is Mario. Uh, which also means that Mario's full name is Mario Mario. Um, which also means that Luigi's full name is Luigi Mario. Uh, as if Luigi couldn't feel any less special and any less uh, downtrodden by the Mario name. Uh, but yes, Luigi Mario is the only individual to see the Shy Guy's face, to which he reacts with shock, terror, and fainting. As the story goes, after the footage gets out and the ceremony is concluded, Luigi is approached by the Koopa Corporation, one of Bowser's business-style subsidiaries that helps fund his armies and his conquests, and they approach him with a deal. Tell nothing of what you saw, and we shall hand over 100 million in gold coins. Luigi, jumping at the chance to finally have gold under his, under his name, finally have the ability to put something out there in the world that he would be known for other than being Mario's player too, signs the non-disclosure agreement with the Koopa Corporation and vows secrecy as to what's under the Shy Guy's red cloak and mask. This, of course, is confirmed to have been a canonical event because where does he spend that money just a few years later? On a haunted mansion that would become the setting for the beloved series of Luigi's Mansion. Yes, this event truly did happen. Luigi truly saw something horrifying underneath that mask, and he has the money and the signed contract to prove it. Of course, we never get his side of the story of what he saw, but I think that a genetically mangled Koopa is certainly worth a secret of a hundred million gold coins. So yeah, there's that. Our first theory terrifying as it is. So you'll never really look at one of those cute little soldiers the same way ever again. Moving on, however, just to keep upping the ante, taking a break from the Mushroom Kingdom, let's switch over to Kirby. We all know Kirby, that round pink little puffball shaped like a friend, capable of eating buffets in an instant, charging around Dreamland and standing up to King DDD and his, ty his tyranny against the people of Cappy Town, if you're watching the cartoon, or Dream uh, Dreamland as a whole if you're playing any of the games. Kirby is a phenomenally optimistic antagonist, despite being a baby in terms of his race's age. And despite that, and despite being a baby, he has stood up to the universe's most powerful cosmic threats time and time again. But those cosmic threats and Kirby's frightening level of power for an infant are not what we're discussing today. See, in Kirby 64, one of the more beloved games for the Nintendo 64, there is an ice level held in the galaxy which houses Kirby's planet, Popstar, and several other worlds that he travels to in that game's adventure. One of these is a very desolate-looking planet called Shiverstar. And if you take a look at Shiverstar in the menu select really take a good look at it, you notice that it is a singular planetoid with a small orbiting moon. The planet itself is almost grayed out. 
not because of a level select thing, but it seems to physically have been grayed out. Uh, almost covered in what could probably be a nuclear winter. Massive ice drifts. Or dying and decaying land. And you're kind of confused by this. Why would this grim-looking thing happen? And then you, of course, arrive on Shiver Star, and it's this sprawling cityscape, seemingly abandoned. There's strange, no trespassing signs all over the place. There's this enormous, enormous shopping mall towards the end of the, the level, uh, and uh, after that specific part of the level, you go behind them all in the, into this huge factory where you see these, these strange creatures move in the background, operating these bizarre machines... And eventually you meet the final boss of this world, this giant robot fought with skyscrapers. Uh, just this massive cityscape, this this derelict kind of setting. It feels hopeless in a game full of color and, and life and joy that Kirby presents. It's so out of place, isn't it? Well, there might just be more to this planet than this strange desolation. See, um... I mentioned Nuclear Winter. Take a really good look at Shiver Star. You can find the images on, on Google, or if you happen to own a copy of Kirby 64, first off, props to you. That was a fun game, and if you have an access to a real copy, I'd play it all the time. But take a look at Planet Shiver Star. Take a real good look, and you can see that as the planet turns and its moon orbits it, you can see the very faint silhouette of a couple of continents that we may all recognize. They're vague, of course, and pixel rendering back in, in the time of the N64 wasn't fantastic, but it looks a little too close to the shapes of the continents of Earth. A little too close. And then when you look at the architecture and the supplies and the, the no trespassing in, in blatant English, on some of those those signs that you find throughout the derelict level and the AI that you find around. Looks like uh it looks like Skynet happened. It's a little a little off putting. See, one can assume that Kirby takes place in the far flung future just because of the sheer presence of all of the different creatures that inhabit that universe, both on a cosmic scale and all of the planets that you've discovered. So what if, at one point, on Earth, we got a little too big for our britches, messed around with one or two nuclear reactors, set off a winter, and kept buying into the machine race, and let that AI continue to get smarter and smarter and smarter until we had a full-blown Skynet incident? See... The issue here, of course, that everyone points out is obviously Shiver Star is not in the galaxy system that Pop Star and the rest of Kirby's world is in. Well, yes, Shiver Star is there, and if it's Earth, that's a problem because Earth should be in the solar system. But the antagonist for Kirby 64, Dark Matter, does have the ability, as shown throughout the game, to kind of rewrite the, the laws of reality and move planets around. And. It's been stated that he did part of this on purpose to mess with the layout of the galaxy so Kirby would have a harder time finding the crystals he needs to stop him.
So why not take some of those crystals and keep them for safe placing, uh, for, for keep them for uh, safekeeping on a planet destroyed by its own inhabitants, where the monstrous AI roams the wastelands, the waste festers and congregates on the planet's surface, and the environment itself is something unlike Kirby's ever seen. It's a pretty good place to store some world-ending level crystals of magic, isn't it? So next time you load up Kirby 64, or any Kirby game where you can see Shiverstar in the distance, take a good look and think of uh, the horrifying implications of mankind in, that, in Kirby's universe. Having fun yet? We've got a few more to share. Moving on, I've got a lovely little story from Metroid. We all know Metroid, or at least most of us know Samus. See, Smash Bros' original 12 characters, from all the way back from the N64, featured a bounty hunter named Samus Aran. Of course, from the famous Metroid games. And in the original Super Metroid, you were introduced to Samus' full spectrum of abilities. This bounty hunter with alien bird DNA injected into her de injected into herself and a suit specifically designed so that she could go around the universe and act as a bounty hunter, battling the Metroid threat that was imposed upon her world. And, of course, battling the space dragon demon pirate Ridley, who murdered her parents uh, in cold blood. Yeah. Nice job, Nintendo. Some gritty stuff for uh, a pixel game. But Metroid is a beloved franchise because it embodies the fast action-paced side-scrolling that, that had taken the world by storm from its era. And the original Super Metroid has actually still remained extremely relevant because it is one of the most competitive games to speedrun. And it is, a, it is such a joy because if you ever watch like a live stream competition at uh, speedrunning at speed speed competitions across the, the world where Nintendo hosts events, seeing the Super Metroid speedrunning competition every year is exhilarating. Their players are down to the pixel to race through this game. And it only takes like two or three hours to beat the game if you're rushing it and you know it well and you can drill the same rep repetitions over and over and over again. What's also really neat is there are different kinds of speedruns for it. There's the speedruns for 100% completion, speedruns for lowest possible percentage completion, speedrunning for certain talismans or artifacts or things like that getting through specific levels at specific times. It's so neat how many different ways this game can be played. But one thing that can either lose or gain a player valuable seconds is at the very end of the game, action movie cliche style, once Samus defeats the final boss, the planet begins to blow up. And as Samus escapes, she passes a room in the lair of where the final boss was, where a handful of Etacoons and Akoras, which are basically space bear cubs and space ostriches, uh, are, and you as the player have the chance to pass them by or set them free. In speedrunning competitions, this can waste a couple of seconds, so most people don't, but here's the catch. It's always been an anomaly why these animals have been there. No one really knows. I mean, of course, you see them at different points of the game. But individuals have been known to donate during the live streams, as they are mostly done for charity, 
Individuals donate all the time to war for their side. Should you save the animals? Should you not save the animals? And it's really neat to see how just these little critters randomly placed in a room are responsible for so much donations throughout the years. But if you choose to set them free, you can actually see them flying away from the planet in a different direction during the, uh, the, the cutscene where Samus escapes the explosion herself. Um, if not, you don't get treated to that little blurb on the distance. The issue here is their presence and actions in this scene and throughout the game are kind of highly suspect. I mean, it's really weird that they just are all of a sudden closed in this random room towards the end of the uh, of the the base on the planet where Samus is sent to clear out the the Metroids and then eventually the X Parasite, one of the main antagonistic forces in Metroid. Uh, I know what you're thinking it's not the actual Metroids. The Metroids are a problem, yes, but the X-Parasite is a much deadlier threat that Samus was originally contracted to take out. The issue here with these animals is the X-Parasite itself. The X-Parasite is a genetically mutated disease that its only purpose is to infect, kill, and then create copies of its victims so that it can eventually spread all over the universe. It's not exactly a living disease, but it's programmed in a way genetically to just endlessly hunt, kill, and copy, to the point where it can gain enough of a, a victim's memories and mannerisms so that it basically turns into the thing. Um, which is terrifying, which is a terrifying implication. If you've ever seen The Thing or the reboot that came out a couple years ago, uh, it's horrifying how accurate The Thing can replicate a human. Imagine this thing, the X-Parasite, on a galactic scale, able to copy any organism to an even more plausible clone and copy. Now, of course, I know what you're all thinking. Oh, is the planet, for the, well, for those of you who've never played the Metro game, is the planet infected with people and Samus doesn't know? There's really no life on the planet at that point. It's just Samus and a handful of these animals. And these animals uh, are teach her a few different abilities throughout the game. They actually show her how to jump up through different corridors. They teach her how to wall jump. They teach her about Chozo's super speed. But the issue here is they're animals. Samus is a trained bounty hunter. These animals are outperforming a trained bounty hunter at her own game to, to reteach her these skills. These animals shouldn't be able to do that. They're ostriches and bear cubs, but spacified. That's very strange, isn't it? Also, the these things seemingly pilot a spaceship at the end of the game if you choose to save them? Ostriches and bear cubs? That's a little weird. They, which means that they traveled. They, they, which means that they had a ship stored. If they were able to escape, what kind of ship would they have stored? Perhaps it was the same ruined ship that Samus repaired and restored power to earlier in the game. There is a haunted ship level very close to the room where the animals are found in the escape sequence. See, it's just a couple of tunnels up and to the north uh, of the map. Uh, and once it's cleared halfway through the game, you can go back and further explore it and restore power to it. 
It's a strange location for the animals to be trapped indeed. So close to a convenient escape route. Yeah, I hate to say it, these cute little animals might be ex-parasite clones. Now, of course, with the evidence I've presented you, there's no really way to tell. It's like, it could be a coin toss. They could just be really, really advanced animals. I mean, we've seen that in video games before. Here's the damning evidence. You actually get to fight congealed masses of the ex-parasite while you're escaping. They kind of float and bounce around the screen at different points, and they deal damage to Samurai's if they run into her. And you actually see the animals at certain points run past Samus, almost as if to escape. But the ex-parasite blobs don't attack the animals ever on screen. They just ignore them. They let them go right by. They just are gunning for Samus. And then, of course, Samus finds them trapped a few rooms ahead. And canonically, the choice that Samus is supposed to make is to save the animals. Because Samus is a sucker for cute animals. That is a personality flaw that was written into her character design. Well, <laughs> this isn't the only game with the X virus, the X parasite. It goes on. She fights it again in different Metroid games. All because perhaps these animals got out. These cloned carriers were able to pilot a spaceship out of an exploding planet's orbit and sail off into the galaxy somewhere carrying the very disease that Samus was sent to eradicate much as I hate to say it, probably should have condemned those cute little animals to die, because uh, they really weren't cute little animals, now were they? But nope. We now have the rest of the Metroid games, which is great. The Metroid games are fantastic, but could have all been avoided. You could have just left that door closed, Samus. Or even better, one fully charged laser, laser cannon. All could have taken. Oops. On a much more lighter note to begin our next one, though, keeping the theme of animals, let's talk about Animal Crossing. Animal Crossing took the world by storm last year during the pandemic. With the new Animal Crossing game coming out on the Switch, everyone was sitting around, making their towns, enjoying themselves. You know, falling back into the repetitive cycle of falling into crippling debt with Tom Nook while you became the de facto mayor of a brand new town of happy-go-lucky bipedal animal denizens. It's a relaxing game. You get to design a house, a home, a whole town, fish, take vacation, interact with townsfolk, and invite friends to see your villages. And of course, that's not just the newest Animal Crossing. That's been the shtick for Animal Crossing for years. It is a relaxing, fun game. Or is it? See, Animal Crossing begins the same way every time. With granite, new town, new storylines, new abilities to customize a town, but the game is fundamentally the same each time. You, as the player, are on a boat, or a taxi, or carriage, something of the like, being escorted to this new town by everyone's favorite driver slash sea captain, Cap'n. 
this tortle man who explains the new town being started and they're looking for a mayor, they're looking for a, a town hall assistant, yada yada yada. And very he's got he's just so excited to bring you there. And then of course you're dropped off, you go into the town hall, you meet Isabel or Tom Nook or whoever's in charge and they set you on the way and mysteriously you're just the mayor now. You're in charge. Well, you're in charge to a point because like I said, you're in crippling debt to Tom Nook. I mean, he needs those bells, man. Um, you got to get it to him. It's all a little too fast. I mean, you don't just move to a new place and become the mayor, do you? I mean, that's just weird. You're given complete power, adoration by everyone, just nothing but positive reinforcement, telling everyone saying you're doing a great job as mayor, even if you haven't even started yet. It's a little too positive reinforcement for doing nothing. And, of course, I mean, yeah, the only person who's not really praising you is Tom Nook. I mean, he's saying you're doing a good job, but you gotta get those bells to him. It's, uh, it's a little strange. It's very Twilight Zone-esque, if you imagine it. Just imagine waking up and you're a mayor in a town somewhere. The problem here is uh, the running theory that most Animal Crossing fans have work together to piece to piece out throughout the years is um Animal Crossing's not just a game about moving to a new town, being the mayor, and fixing the place up. Yeah, it's a cult. It's 100% a cult. See, uh the interesting choice of starting each game with Cap'n uh escorting you is Cap'n is a turtle. But there's an interesting spelling about his name and the way he talks. See, He's got this very strange speech pattern. It's very slow and drawling, which, of course, you think is like, oh, Captain's just an old man. He's an old sea captain, an old taxi driver. He's seen the world. He's just a little slow. But he also talks about how much he likes kids, and one repeated line through a lot of different iterations of Animal Crossing is he likes kids because they're so gullible. That's not okay, Cap'n. Um, to make things worse, the name Cap'n, K-A-P-P apostrophe N, Cap'n's a little close to the word Kappa. In Japanese folklore, there used to be this creature called the Kappa. It looked like a turtle. It was bipedal. And what it did was it stole the souls of children and travelers who strayed a little too far from home. And uh, it whisked them away to the spirit world. Maybe it's not the spirit world in this case, but, uh... Cap'n is always the one to bring you to the new Animal Crossing town. Maybe you wandered a little too far. Maybe you, uh... And actually, there is one Animal Crossing game where you actually ran away from home to start a new life. Um... And Cap'n takes you to the new Animal Crossing settlement to act as mayor and everyone showers you with adoration and praise I mean that's just cult recruitment 101 you know just praising the new recruit oh you're doing such a great job everything is going to plan you're doing such a, a good job around here and then of course people start then asking the new mayor for favors like oh you're doing such a great job by the way could you do this for me could you take care of something it's a little it's not good. See, here's the thing. Even if you as a player realize what's happening, you might try to just see, hey, my, maybe I could leave this town. Maybe I could go take a walk outside and see what else. You can walk around, of course, but 
when you get to the edge of the town, there's always maybe a convenient rock slide, or the road is under construction, or there's no outgoing boats today. All right, so you can't leave. It's fine. It's, everything should be fine. I mean, you just there, there's, there's construction, or there's no boats. There's a rock slide. It'll, it'll be taken care of. Maybe I can just work on repaying Tom Nook. Maybe I can get a good business day in. But no matter how much you invest, how many bells you give the raccoon, the bell debt never decreases. It never ends. Scary thought, because we all know what debt feels like. But the raccoon isn't letting you off the hook, even with your, your payments. That bell debt never goes down. It's an endless loop. You're stuck being the mayor. Doing everyone's favors. Bringing new people to the town while you can't leave. Yeah, they're using you. They're using you to bolster their own economy while they live luxurious lives while you, their, their lovable mayor, take care of all of their problems for them. Oopsies. Shouldn't have listened to Captain. Our next theory is a little bit of a, of a left field pick by me, but uh, the 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 sheer Twilight Zone presentation of it was just so alluring. We've all played Smash Bros. I don't think I've met a person who's not played Smash Bros. And if you've been playing the recent Smash Bros. game, you notice that back with Smash Bros. Wii U and Smash Bros. 3DS, there was the addition of Little Mac. To the roster. Little Mac is from an arcade cabinet called Punch-Out. Back in 1984, the world was introduced to Punch-Out, an arcade cabinet featuring 17-year-old prodigy boxer Little Mac's rise to the top of the ring. He fights his way through several tough matches, including against the legendary Mike Tyson himself, and takes home the belt. Sounds simple, right? Throughout the game, you fight against a, very, uh, a large amount of comical-style boxers, and of course, a replica of Mike Tyson, and find your way to the top. Your lovable trainer helps you all the way through and you become a champion boxer. But there's a problem. Seventeen's really young to be on the professional boxing circuit. I don't think that there's a, ever been a boxer quite so young. You'd have to be training for years. You'd have to have committed to this when you were like 12 years old. And Little Mac's only been training for a little bit of time. I mean, from what you can gather, he's not been in it for a long time. He's not even he doesn't even have a record. And this 17-year-old kid just waltzes out of nowhere, defeats some of the world's top boxers who've defended their title for decades, and walks away with the belt? Also, he's 140 pounds soaking wet tops, and he defeats... Former heavyweight champion Mike Tyson. He's twice his size, at minimum. That's a little weird for a 17-year-old kid. I mean, it's also a little weird because you notice that Little Mac's not exactly the fastest boxer. I mean, he's fast, sure, but he's not lightning quick for a little guy. And a lot of his opponents are ridiculously slow in comparison not to show that Little Mac's fast, but it's really obvious that they're just not moving. They're doing their best, but they're 
oddly predictable, they're slow to move, they're telegraphing their, their movements extremely well. In boxing, you're trying to remain with a guard up. You've got fists at the ready, you've got you've got to know your own moves, and you've got to be able to take advantage of any and all small opens and openings in an opponent's defenses. Boxing is, is just as much a game of bluffing as it is fighting. You have to trick and feint and move around the ring with fluidity and, and purpose. And these guys are sticking to the same three moves and heavy telegraphs. Anyone could probably step into the ring with their level of fighting, but these are champions. How is this 17-year-old kid taking advantage of all these champions' worst possible fighting days? It's because they're letting him... They're letting him win. Or at least they're, le they're giving him enough ability to win and get his way through the boxing circuit. See, they were brought in to purposely lose against Little Mac. See, Mike Tyson's also not the only celebrity cameo. You see some faces in the crowd that can definitely be traced to different celebrities of the time of Punch-Out! And who is your, is your, your referee in the ring but Mario himself? When was Mario trained as, as a boxing ref? There's just a little bit too too many weird things going on around here. The reason? The reason can be found in Little Mac's age. He's 17 years old. He's not an adult yet. And uh, he's got these celebrities throwing matches for him in a boxing ring. This sounds a little familiar. Uh, a couple years ago... There was a young kid who, uh, his Make-A-Wish Foundation wish was to fight in the boxing ring against John Cena, and John Cena, John Cena let him win. It's that. Little Mac is not an up-and-coming young boxing star. You can't box at 17 years old, and these opponents are so much more talented than him. And yet they're throwing... Little Mac is not a champion. Little Mac's not a rising star. Little Mac is a star that's burning out. This is a Make-A-Wish Foundation wish. Little Mac and his trainer knew he didn't have time to make his dreams come true, so he asked for one shot. And being 17 years old, he falls under the Make-A-Wish Foundation's guidelines. So the next time you pick up the controller and hover your fighter chip over Little Mac and Smash Bros. Just just think for a second that uh, he might not have much time left after that next stock battle. Oops. <laughs> I have only a few more theories for you. And of course there are two... I've saved our two most well-known for last. I want to start with Pokemon. Pokemon has been a staple of this show as at here at EIF for our major Pokemon episode we discussed back in episode one. And me and Matt are both extreme fans of the series. We've played through all the games and we know the stories. We've trained expert teams of Pokemon. It's fun. It is a game of being a champion and training to be the very best that no one ever was. 
Well, except for the first game. Play through the events of Pokemon Red, Blue, and Yellow, and I want you to look me in the eye and tell me that you're not the villain. First off, your rival, whatever you choose his name to be, canonically it's Gary. Gary is raised by his grandfather, Professor Oak, and all he wants is the same thing as you, his childhood best friend, to go and become the Pokemon champion. And here's the problem. His grandfather forgets his own name. You constantly bully him with your own Pokemon team. Uh, you mercilessly defeat him over and over and over and over again. And you're like you're not even nice about it. And it's very clear that Gary is, is upset and hiding his frustration through sarcasm each time he loses. Not being able to live up to his best friend whom his own grandfather holds in higher regard than his than his own grandson. And then at the end of the game, Gary has beaten you. Gary has passed you on the route and he has become Pokemon champion. And he has one chance to defend it. And you scoop it out from under him. And not only do you scoop it out from under him, but in the final cutscene for the game, his own grandfather congratulates and praises you and scolds Gary in front of you. You are a horrible villain in this game. Yeah, sure, you take down Team Rocket, big whoop, but you just crush Gary's dreams. But to make matters the worst, there's been a theory circulating around the internet for years where you not only bully him mercilessly, but you are responsible for the death of one of his Pokemon. See, in the Pokemon universe, Pokemon can die. It's, it, it's all over Pokedex entries. Some ghost-type Pokemon are the ghosts of other species of Pokemon. Uh, famous example is uh, Charmander and its evolutionary line. If their flame on their tail goes out, they die. <laughs> there's these horrible implications. And there's even proof in the Pokemon universe that people, yeah, people eat other Pokemon. Magikarp Sushi is a thing. You see it in, in the cartoon. So, yeah, Pokemon death is a natural part of this world, but uh, it's also very, very evident that battling is also harmful to these creatures to a point. See, there are episodes of the cartoon where Pikachu is put into a coma after battles. And here lies Gary's Raticate. When you fight Gary uh, at a certain point in the game, his fifth fight with you it takes place in Lavender Town, in the Pokemon Tower, which is a graveyard for Pokemon. And you meet him on the seventh floor, and he greets you with the somber statement of, do you know what it's like to lose a Pokemon, to lose a friend? And after a few heartfelt and griefful words about loss, he challenges you to a battle. And you notice something. He has five Pokemon, just like the last time you fought him on the, on the SSN. But as you go through them, you notice his Raticate is missing, and in its place is an Execute. If he still had that Raticate, he'd have six Pokemon on his team. Why would you not carry six Pokemon into a battle? It's basically handicapping yourself. But there's no Raticate. No mention of it. Nothing. And you meet him in a Pokemon Cemetery, and here he is in a somber state talking about loss. Oh no. You must have really kicked that radic that radicate's ass in the last battle. Or did you? I would like to actually 
put the brakes on the darkness of this episode, and I want to inspire a little bit of hope. I shall provide you proof as to how that Raticate actually lives. See, here's the interesting thing about Gary's Raticate. It's low level every time you see it. You see it in two fights. Fight 3 at Nugget Bridge and Fight 4 at the SSN. It's become a member of his team. And you also notice that even before this, for every battle in the series, except for the starting battle where you get your, your Pokemon starters, he has a Rattata, which, of course, you can imagine, probably evolves and eradicate at some point. Here's the issue. At Fight 3, the Raticate is level 15. At Fight 4, the Raticate is level 16. At Fight 3... Uh, sorry, at Fight 2, at Fight 1 and 2, the Rata, the Rattata, can't speak, the Rattata is level 11 and level 15. If the Raticate is level 15 at, at, at Fight 3, it means that it's not the same Rattata. Pokemon have to gain a level in order to evolve. They don't evolve mid-leveling, which means that the Raticate is different from his starting Rattata which means that the original Rattata was probably just stored at his PC, the Pokemon storage system. This Raticate levels up once. It can't be the same Rattata either, but the Raticate must level up once. Now, yes, it's very weird that Gary would not walk into the next battle with six Pokemon, but he trades it out for the one new team member, the Execute. An Execute has higher base stats in every single stat category than a normal leveled Raticate. He's not handicapping himself. If anything, that Execute is worth two Pokemon. It's worth two of his Raticates. He simply just is doing what any normal trainer did. He stored his Raticates and Rattata in his PC before going to the Pokemon Cemetery to pay respects to the fallen Pokemon of trainers past. Gary is much more solemn in his Pokemon training than you as, as, as the rival. Yes, he's sarcastic to you, but he's clearly reverent towards the sport of Pokemon. So of course he'd be reverent at a Pokemon graveyard. And he's young, he has no parents, he's definitely known a thing or two about loss. He's just in a solemn mood because of the setting. He didn't lose that Raticate. You are not a murderer. You're just a jerk. Take solace in that. A little bit of a happy note to debunk a very dark theory. Before I, of course, present our last one. Our last theory of the night is a personal favorite of mine as it relates to my favorite Nintendo game of all time. And I'm sure that a lot of you have heard it, and as soon as I mention the name of this game, I sh I'm sure that you'll all be shaking your heads, either agreeing or disagreeing with me. My favorite game series is The Legend of Zelda, out of Nintendo's properties. I have played nearly all of them. I have beaten most of the ones I have laid my hands on. And the one I have beaten time and time again and love to death is Majora's Mask. And the famous theory goes that Majora's Mask is not taking place in the world of the living. It is Link's afterlife. The reason for this is right in the first act of the game, when Link rides into the forest in search of his missing friend Navi, he is mugged and chases down the thief in the form of a Skull Kid, who has stolen his precious Ocarina of Time from the previous game, 
And in chasing him into a deck, into a tree in the forest, into a hideout, he takes a very long tumble and lands on a Deku flower at the bottom, presumably a long ways down, before Skull Kid, now infused with dark power, warps him into the twisted shape of a Deku scrub before running away. With a new fairy at his side, Link surges forward and finds himself coming out not underground, as he should be miles underground at this point, he comes out at a clock tower and meets a very strange mask salesman who greets him with the famous cryptic line, You've met with a terrible fate, haven't you? He tells him that he, he somehow, this Mappy Mask salesman somehow recognizes that Link shouldn't be a Deku scrub, despite never meeting him before. He shouldn't be here. He's missing an important object, which is, of course, the Ocarina of Time. And he needs to be back in his normal shape. The mask salesman also has a trouble as well. See, he's lost a very important mask that he took a long time to get his hands on. It was stolen by a Skull Kid imp. So he makes, it, he makes a deal with Link. You go get your special item back from the Skull Kid, and I shall teach you how to return to your normal form. In return, you will have three days to retrieve my mask, Majora's mask, from the imp. Do we have a deal? Link, of course, accepts and steps out into the brilliant town of Clocktown in the center of a land called Termina. He retrieves his special item, the Ocarina of Time, from the Skull Kid at the end of the third day where he has seen that the Skull Kid, who has grown progressively maddened by the power of this dark mask, has pulled the very moon from its orbit, and as it crashes into the planet... Link knocks the ocarina from the imp's hands, plays the Song of Time, and travels back three days to when he first landed in Termina, when he first crossed the threshold from clock tower to town. He retreats inside, presents his item to the happy mask salesman, who, despite the time reset, notices that events have changed. And he has taught the Song of Healing to return to the form of Child Link and then sets out to retrieve Majora's Mask by, by reawakening the spirits of the four long-sleeping giants who have watched over the land of Termina for decades and hundreds of years. In the end, Link confronts the Skull Kid after reawakening the four giants in the Moon Sanctuary as it is stopped from colliding with the Earth by the four giants. There, a battle ensues. Link defeats Majora's Mask incarcerates Skull Kid, and, and Skull Kid realizes that all he wanted was just to be reunited with his friends of the Giants, and he acted out of irrationality. Link brings the Dark Mask back to the Happy Mask Salesman, and he goes on his way. Well, not quite. He stays for the festival, actually. Despite saying his haste, he stays for the festival and enjoys his time. The game fades, with Link seemingly riding back off into the woods in search of his missing friend Navi. And then, of course, like always, you get your flash of going back into the game. Dawn of the first day. So that you can continue to play the post-game content. Lovable game. Fantastic game. But where does the, the death theory fit in? See, Termina is very strangely designed. 
A lot of the elements of the game revol revolve around masks. You collect masks as Link, and they help you complete different quests. Some do special properties, they let you into special areas, they give you an extra weapon, they camouflage you, they give you answers, they do a number of things. But there are four specialized masks in the game that Link can wear. The Mask of the Deku Scrub, which turns him into a Deku Scrub. The Mask of the Zora, which turns him into a Zora, fish person. And the Mask of the Goron, which turns him into this mountain, rock-dwelling individual that can curl up into a ball. But each of these masks are created from the soul of a passed-on member of each race. See, you learn that the Deku Scrub, whose form you have taken, is actually the son of the Deku King's butler who was lost in the woods and has not returned yet. The same dried-up Deku scrub that you passed on your way into Termina when you were first turned into a scrub. Zora, that you take the mask from, is a member of, a dead, uh, is, is a member of the band of the, the Great Bay Zoras, who has mysteriously disappeared at sea. And the Goron, you take the form of the great leader Darmani, father of the, the heir to the clan, passed away was frozen in the ice as he was going to get food for his people in the harsh winter. You possess the masks containing the souls of these individuals and deal with problems related to the deaths of each of them. You remind a butler of, of the game of racing with his child. You coddle and comfort the child of Darmani, the Goron tribe leader, and you restore happiness to Lulu in Great Bay, Azora, who has lost her eggs. Eggs that you can presume are the Zora you've taken the form of as children. Death is all over the place in this game. And of course, the five stages of grief. Beginning with denial, it is believed that the stage is portrayed by the people of Clocktown as they resist the inevitable fall of the moon hovering above them to the point where they just can't avoid it anymore. Even still, after most of the townsfolk leave, some of them remain to wait out the Carnival of Time event they hold every year. It's ridiculous. The moon's right overhead. It's scowling down at them. And yet they still stay out of denial. Anger portrayed by the Deku of Woodfall, they find out their princess is missing, and automatically point fingers at the monkeys who live in the swamp. The Deku are so blinded with rage that they don't even realize the monkey is actually trying to help them find their lost princess instead of having been kidnapped her in the first place. The third stage is bargaining, and they see, and which seems to be visible in Snowhead. Darmani, the leader of the Gorons, aware of his death, but fears leaving his people behind, coming to the point of bargaining for his life back, he begs Link to restore him to life with his magic, which he can only do so to heal his pain with the Song of Healing. And with that soft song humming in his ears, he settles with the bargain of leaving Link to care for his people in his place and gives him the mask with his soul in it so that he may transform into a Goron. The fourth stage, depression, occurs when our hero finds Lulu in the Great Bay, lost, uh, lost with her heart as she isolates herself with her eggs being stolen. Everyone close to her is concerned as she isolates herself and seems to have lost her voice out of pure sadness. Only when Lulu hears the melody of her newly hatched children when Link rescues the eggs is she brought out of that. And the final stage, of course, being acceptance. 
When Link scales the stone tower in Akana Canyon and comes to grips with his fate, this ever-cycling torrent of three days in which he must save the world, he possesses the song, of elog uh, the, song the Elegy of Emptiness and takes the light arrows from the ruins and goes into Clock Town on the final rotation and stands against Skull Kid, accepting the pain that he has been put through and what he must do to save Termina. He confronts Skull Kid again in the Moon Sanctuary, calls the four giants, and Termina is saved. A story of the five stages of grief because of Link's own passing from the fall that he suffered. Most people think that this is the full theory. And it really is. This is all the research that has been presented. I wish to add something to it. Now, of course, the speculation is, did Link die from the fall? People say yes, people say no. Even, even so, there's something strange about the way this game is soaked in death and grim imagery. But I don't think it's death. I think that I propose a, a new perspective. Keep the five stages. It's acceptance. It's, it's the full five. But the issue here is it's not a game of the afterlife and processing it and then moving on like you see Link travel into the light of the forest. See, it's a deal with the devil. Remember how I mentioned that the happy mask salesman, this very cryptic-looking individual who wears an impish smile, makes a deal with Link? You get your instrument back so that I can teach you how to return to your form and you get my mask back? It's a deal he makes. The only reason he's here is because he agreed to help the mask salesman in return for getting restored to his true form. And what happens? He continues this three-day cycle over and over and over again until he has all the pieces to confront Skull Kid. And the happy mask salesman says the entire time, I need to get going as soon as you give me the mask. I need to leave, I need to leave, I need to leave, I need to leave. And then he gets the mask, and what does he do? He stays in Clock Town. And Link, of course, thinking, oh, maybe he just wanted to see the festival, then leaves, presumably finds his way back to Hyrule, and walks into the forest. But then you get the dawn of the next day. And here's the kicker. A lot of the Zelda games, when you finish the main game and you fight the final boss or clear the main dungeon and you watch the credit scenes, when you reload the game again, you are loaded in at the last save point you made before fighting the final boss. And, of course, whatever magical item you get in the final dungeon, you don't have because, you know, you went back to the save before you had it. Because that's how the game works. Majora's Mask does this interesting thing with its endgame content. See, if you collect all of the masks throughout the game, the non-magical masks, there's, I believe, 30 of them, as you go through the Moon Sanctuary, you notice the Moon Children that are there who would have, of course, perished as the moon fell to the earth, they wish to have masks. And if you give all of the masks out, there's one final child who sits next to the child wearing Majora's mask. And he says, I don't need my mask, but you look like you could use it. And he hands you the fierce deity mask. And when dawned in the moon sanctuary, Link grows to his adult form, covered in tribal tattoos and wearing heavy armor, brandishing a helix sword made of magic. 
that gives him a super-powered magical fighting chance against Majora. Playing as normal Link in this fight is, of course, a grueling and long, difficult fight, but as the fierce deity Link, it takes only three or four mighty swings of your great sword and your powerful magic to slay the demon. This is, of course, the magical item that you get in the final dungeon of the Moon Sanctuary. And, of course, you see your happy ending if you get the Moon Sanctuary item. You still see the defeat and the redemption of Skull Kid and the, and the carnival and seeing him walk into the forest, dawn of the next day. And when you check your inventory, yes, of course, you get your masks back because it's a time reset because that's the rule the masks follow. But you also have the Fierce Deity Mask. It's still there in your inventory. You can't use it because it can only be used on the moon. But it's there. It's physically in your inventory. Which means that the events happened. You're beyond that save point. You have won the day. But here you are. Back at the dawn of the first day. Despite completing your mission. Despite breaking the cycle. You didn't break it. You started it over again. You're back. The happy mask salesman still tells you you have three days to get Majora's mask. And yet you stand there with the fierce deity's mask in hand, knowing that just minutes ago, you handed it to him. And he just gives you that impish smile once more. You have three days. You've met with a terrible fate, haven't you? Link is stuck in a time loop, in his own personal twilight zone. It's not a game of the afterlife for him. It's not a game of did he die. I don't think he died. I think he just kind of slipped between the veil, found the twilight zone, opened the door, and now he's stuck because the hero in him had to help out, had to make a deal with the person who asked him for help. And here he is. So what does he do? He keeps trying to fix the cycle off-screen as the game ends, as you put it down because you realize there's no end. He continues to fix the cycle. He, over and over and over again, he faces the hardships that Termina presents and defeats Skull Kid over and over and over again, shoves the Majora's Mask into the hands of the Happy Mask Salesman, tells him to leave, but he never does. He gets that room at the hotel every night after the festival. Link tries to escape, runs to the woods to get to Hyrule, only to walk out the door of the clock tower every time. Dawn of the first day. 72 hours remain. So eventually, what does he do? falls to his own acceptance and despair and lets the moon crash over and over and over again submitting, giving in as he realizes that the only way for the hero's reincarnation to continue on is if he perishes in the moon crash so he lets himself perish and where does he go after death? not to Termina Termina's destroyed Termina is its own parallel world. What he does is he maintains the cycle. The hero's soul gets reincarnated, and several years later in Hyrule, when the next Link, the next hero of the story, rises up and receives swordsman's training, who does he get his training from? A spirit 
a spirit in the twilight realm, a realm that was destroyed, a realm of dark spirits and strange magics, of a race of people that created masks, the twilight created ritual masks of dark magics to control the flow of light and dark in their shade bound forever of nothingness he meets the, he the spirit of the hero this knight brandishing sword and shield and armor and receives training in using the master sword that spirit of the hero is the very same link from Majora's Mask and Ocarina of Time. And just because he was a kid in Majora's Mask doesn't mean that he wasn't an adult for parts of Ocarina of Time when he traveled to the future of Hyrule. That's how he can teach the next link how to use the Master Sword. That is our hero of Hyrule, our carrier of the Ocarina of Time, and the sad victim of the terrible fate of Termina all because of a deal made with the devil, the happy mask salesman. And this has been the Twilight Zone. And that about does it. Those, my friends, are some of my personal favorite grimdark theories of many of the most beloved Nintendo game franchises. I'm glad that you were able to sit through my haunting stories this evening. And, of course, us here at EIF just want to remind you, they're all nothing but theories. They're all nothing but fun and speculation. Of course, none of these are literal. None of these are actual truths to these games. They're simply for fun, for speculation, and for a horrifying good time. So, please join us next week on our main show at EIF we're having much oh, we're have we have many more podcasts planned for the rest of the summer Matt goes in a couple of weekends with his next how are you segment and uh we have a lot of fun stuff planned i hope you guys enjoyed my little yarn of nintendo horror tonight and just remember no matter how crazy life gets everything is fine <laughs>